Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. This month we are trying to give Easter its due. And we are looking at five Sundays under the guise, under the theme of this changes everything. First Sunday of April, we looked at the cross and the propitiation that Jesus was for our sin. Last Sunday, well, you know what we talked about last Sunday, the resurrection. But today, what does that mean? What exactly does the resurrection mean for you on the Sunday after Easter? Two elderly ladies were friends for many decades. And over the last years, they had shared all kinds of activities and adventures. But lately, their activities had been limited to simply meeting a couple of times during the week and playing cards together. One day, they were playing cards, and one of them looked at the other one and said, Now, I don't want you to get mad at me. We've been friends a long time. But right now, for the life of me, I can't think of your name. Would you please tell me your name? Well, her friend just glared at her, just looked sternly at her for about three minutes. And then she said, how soon do you need to know? (laughs) Do you know who you are? Now, I'm not talking about your name and your address and your vocation. But do you realize who you are and what you have in Jesus Christ? I want to read beginning in verse 23 of chapter 4 of Romans. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, our sin, and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Jules Abels wrote a book, a biography, about... John D. Rockefeller. It was called The Rockefeller Billions. And in that book, he said that at one time, John D. Rockefeller's fortune or income, I should say, was approximately a million dollars a week. And one of the biographers said that he lived on a diet toward the end of his life that a pauper would have hated. For example, He said, now less than 100 pounds in weight, he sampled everything at breakfast, a drop of coffee, a spoonful of cereal, a fork full of egg, and a bit of chop the size of a pea. He was the richest man in the world, but he didn't have the ability to even enjoy his food. By the world standards... 
Paul would have been a pauper. He left wealth to follow Jesus when God called him. But Paul was very wealthy when it came to spiritual things, and you and I are wealthy. And I want you to understand today the many benefits that you have. I, I, I really believe there are a lot of Christians who are living their life in fear, and they're living their lives like spiritual paupers. They don't even realize what they have. Now, this is going to be more of a doctrinal doctrine sermon. Doctrine is not synonymous with boredom. And a lot of you think, oh, it's a doctrinal sermon. Let me tell you something. If you don't have the right doctrine, you ain't got the right life. But this doctrine today is something you're going to hold on to, and if you keep remembering it, it will loosen you up to set you free to live a life that is not only pleasing to the Lord, but enjoyable in the Lord. Not enough people rejoice in who they are in Jesus Christ. So several things I want you to notice. First, you see that you have an imputed purity and a pardon. You've been made righteous. Now, the word imputed is sometimes translated credited or accounted to. In fact, in chapter 4 alone, in verse 3, 5 and 6, 8, 9 through 11, 22, 23, and 24, this word is used. I think Paul was trying to make a point. It was either translated accredited or accounted for or imputed. You see, God imputes the righteousness of Jesus to us to credit to our account. Now listen, he doesn't make you righteous. We're not going to be made completely righteous till we get to heaven. What? Stay with me. He doesn't make you righteous. He credits the righteousness of Jesus to your account. We are growing to be more like him in our sanctification. We're becoming more and more righteous in our living. But he doesn't, God doesn't just make you righteous in the way that you live. You're going to grow into that. But he accounts the righteousness that you need to be completely forgiven, to be completely made whole in his eyes. He accredits that from Jesus to you. It's given to you. He doesn't credit our faith. It's not our faith that saves us. Our faith in someone saves us. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is accredited to our account. It says that he was delivered up for our transgressions, delivered over in verse 25. He was, he died for our sin. He paid the price. He was the propitiation for our sin. It's not a direct quote of Isaiah 53, but the substance is there. He said he was delivered over. I know Jesus voluntarily, willingly gave his life for you and me, but I want you to know that God crushed him. The wrath of God crushed him. Listen to Isaiah 53, 12. His soul was delivered to death, and he was numbered among the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and was delivered over because of their iniquities. And in verse 6, just prior to that in Isaiah 53, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then Paul uses that phrase, resurrection from the dead, two times in these verses, which indicates 
The bodily resurrection of Jesus, and by the way, did you know if it wasn't the bodily resurrection of Jesus, then we're wasting our time today because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless, you were still in your sins. But because Jesus died for our sins and God put on him our sin, the resurrection, now God can take what Jesus has done and his righteousness and put it in your account. You don't earn that. You don't buy that. You don't inherit that. You don't get it by being baptized. You don't get it by joining a church. You don't get it by confessing to somebody. You get it when you tell God that you are a sinner. You know you're separated from him. You've got no chance of ever getting there. But Jesus, you believe in your heart, you believe with all your mind and heart that Jesus died in your place. And God says, because you're putting your faith in Jesus, I'm going to credit your account with his righteousness. Now let that sink in for just a minute. Think of all the sins you've ever committed. You had a debt you couldn't pay. Jesus' righteousness covers it all. And because of the resurrection, God is saying it's paid for. Now, he uses the phrase Jesus, our Lord, emphasizing his deity and humanity, but he was delivered up to death because of our sins, and he was raised which resulted in our justification in that verse 25. Not everyone in the world is going to be declared righteous. Because until, in verse 24, it says, those who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. I don't know why people can't understand this. The only hope you and I have is believing what God has done by raising Jesus from the dead. And when we believe in him, then we're declared, imputed, credited, counted to righteousness. You realize that takes all the pressure off of you, don't you? Well, let me move on. I hope you get a little more excited. You're not very convincing yet. Because of that, we have an invariable position in peace. In verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, the word justified, you've heard me say it a hundred times, means to be put right with God just as if I'd never sinned. See, Jesus' righteousness has been credited to my account, and now when God looks at it, it's I'm justified to be put right. But I don't want you to miss something here, and I don't want to bore you, but it's so important to me for you to know this. Arist tense, A-O-R-I-S-T, Arist. There are three, three basic voice, uh, voices, but tenses in the Greek verbs. One is present tense, which when you have a present tense verb in the Scripture, it means continuous action. You keep on doing it. 
And there's a lot of present tense verbs. You keep on doing it. A perfect tense verb means that the action happened at a point in time, but the effects still are going on. And you're going to see one here in just a minute. But aorist tense means it happened at a point in time, period. It's not over and over and over. Happened right then. You have been justified, period, at a point in time. Can you go to the time in your life when you committed your life to Christ? I, I can. I can't remember the exact date. I can't remember. I, I can remember the day because it was the last day of boys camp. <laughs> when I was a kid, it was a Thursday night, and it was at the Beach Springs Baptist Encampment in Smackover, Arkansas. Who can't forget that? Or who can forget that? Last year, we were in El Dorado. My sister lives in El Dorado, and Smackover's right outside of El Dorado. And I drove down to that camp, and I hadn't been there since the Dead Sea was sick. It'd been a long time. Way down the hill, rocks, uh, uh, solid concrete steps, but by now, they're all out of level, and you know how ground settles back over... 50 or 60 years, and walked down to the tabernacle. They called it. It was a, a tin roof building that screened in right next to a pond. Beautiful little scene down there. You could tell the waters flooded that thing several times. All the chairs down there were rusty. But the minute, and I walked down there. I said, I'm going down there. The minute I walked down there and walked in that place, it was like it all came back to me. This is where I gave my life to Christ. This is where at a point in time, instantly, David Wilson was justified to God. He was put right with God. I was only 12, 11 or 12 years old. But it was at that point in time. And then Paul says, being justified at a point in time by faith, we have peace with God. Now, don't miss this. What's the difference in peace with God and the peace of God? See, the word irene, peace, means to bind together. And to have the peace of God means that we sometimes when we're saved, when people are saved, they say, well, I feel such peace. It's that inner tranquility. But to have peace with God means there's no longer any hostility between us. It means there's no longer any separation between us. It means that, that I'm at peace with God, and genuine peace with God means that we're reconciled to him. It is the greatest thing in the world to know that you don't have to be afraid of God when you see him. Some of you are afraid right now. Yeah, I, I, I don't look forward to the process of getting there, but some of you are thinking, well, I hope when I see God that my good outweighs my bad. Well, what makes you think you got anything good? Isaiah says all our righteousness is as filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. You don't have anything good to offer. The only way you're going to have peace with God is through Jesus Christ our Lord. But to know that you have it, you've been put right with God so that when you step in front of him one day, you don't have to be afraid. Now, that ought to make things a little more exciting for you. 
See, peace with God is different from peace of God. Peace with God is different. It's a peace that says there's no more hostility from man's point of view. It means I can breathe a sigh of relief. The war with God is over. Peace has been declared. I've been reconciled to him. There's not anything I can do to make him love and accept me more than he's already accepted me. You too. And it comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's statement implies that we can know for certain that we've been justified by faith. You ever met anybody that just wasn't sure? Well, I hope I make it. Three of my favorite words in all the scripture, for we know, for we know. Well, what this tells us, that if we're justified by Jesus Christ our Lord, then we can't add anything to it. And here's the problem if you do that. You'll always meet somebody who'll say, well, I believe Jesus died for my sin and I put my faith in Christ. But you know, but then, but then you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to be a member of this group. You don't do this and you don't do that and you don't do this and you don't do that. My question to you is how do you know when you've done enough? You don't. You can try all the good works you want, but if you're still working and you don't know that you've been saved, what do I keep giving to the church? Do I keep doing this? Have I served enough? Have I been good enough? And the system of works keeps everyone uncertain about whether they're saved or not. No wonder people know, well, I hope I'm saved. Your salvation had nothing to do with you other than you accepted it. There's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. We're all recovering Pharisees. All of us are recovering. We're all recovering legalists. Because we just think, you know, I've got to do something. I've got to do something to make this real. Lord Jesus Christ is the words he uses in verse 1. Now listen to me. The word Lord speaks of his sovereignty and his authority. You ever heard anybody say, well, you know, Jesus is your Savior. He saved you from your sin, and later on you make him Lord of your life. First of all, you don't make Jesus anything. He is Lord. And there's no such thing as receiving Jesus as your Savior without making him Lord. Because you come to him in repentance and faith and say, Jesus, I I give my life to you, and you're the boss of my life. I give you everything. So he is both Savior and Lord, which means that you begin the Christian life by submitting all of yourself to him. As Jesus, he's fully human. Jesus knows how you feel. He got mad without sinning. I haven't learned that part yet. He laughed. Yeah, I know that's going to shock some of you because you're so serious all the time. Jesus had to have laughed to walk around with the disciples all that time. 
He cried. He hurt. He's one of us. The only one thing that the only way he could save us is become one of us. And that's what he did. And the word Christ, in the Greek, it is the word Christ. In the Hebrew, it's the word Messiah or anointed one. You see, God, Jesus is God's appointed prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, he spoke God's word, the very God, words of God to us in John 8, 16 and 17. As the high priest, he offered himself as the one once and for all, atonement for our sins, and now he lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7, 24. And it's God's anointed king. He is the sovereign of the universe, and he's going to rule this world one day in a new heaven and a new earth. And it means that the only way to have peace with God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to salvation. Don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. Don't let anybody ever tell you well, Jesus is one of the ways, and, and all of us are going to get to God. We're just going our own different paths. Broad is the destruction that leads to hell. There's only one path, and it's very narrow. It's through Jesus Christ that leads to heaven. And I don't understand what part of no one people don't understand when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But let me get back to your position. God's given you righteousness. He's credited righteousness to you cover your sin, the righteousness of Jesus. And now you are put right with God, and you have peace with God. But it gets even better. Because, see, you also have an inexhaustible privilege and prerogative. You have access. Look at verse 2. Through whom we also have access to bring before. The idea is one who brings a person into the presence of a third party for the purpose of introducing the two or to present one to one another. Our access to God comes through Jesus Christ. And you come into the very presence of God, and when you come into the presence of God, guess what you find? Grace. <laughs> Grace. When Jesus died on the cross, God put the sin of the world on him, and he cried out, It is finished indicating that the propitiation, the, the penalty had been paid, the wrath of God had been taken. And you know what God did? He tore the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies. Now that curtain wasn't like your shower curtain at home. I could tear that curtain. This curtain's probably about this thick in front of the Holy of Holies. He tore that from top to bottom. And you know what he said? He didn't say this, but I'm going to paraphrase it. Here's what he indicated. Come on in. Come on in. You have access to me now. Peter talks about the priesthood of the, of the believer. When you know Jesus, you're the part of the priesthood. Jesus is the high priest. 
You don't confess to a priest. You confess to God straight through Jesus Christ. When you pray in Jesus' name, it's not the ending of a prayer. You're praying because of Jesus, that you have access into God's place, into God's grace. When you come before God, you're going to find his grace. That word also, access, has another beautiful picture to it. It means haven or harbor. Picturing a storm tossing the seas and a ship being tossed and finding access to the haven. What a beautiful picture of our life. We're out here in the sinful world and we're lost as a ball in tall weeds and we have no help of finding out where God is or saving ourselves. And then Jesus Christ comes and we have access. I'm reminding of an, reminded of an old hymn. My soul in sad exile was out on life's sea. So burdened with sin and distressed. Till I heard a sweet voice saying, make me your choice. And I entered the haven of rest. Have anchored my soul in the haven of rest. I'll sail the wide seas no more. The tempest may sweep over wild storming deep. In Jesus I'm safe evermore. We sing amazing grace. Part of that song says, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Listen, you have the privilege to talk to God anytime you want to. You have access you have the code. <laughs> you have him on speed dial. You got him. You don't have to come through anyone else. And you don't have to speak in the King James language. <laughs> Instead of using thee, he knows what y'all means. To him, the privilege you have to come to his presence. But got one more for you, too. We have an incomparable prospect and promise, hope, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, New Testament word for hope is different from the way you and I use the word hope. The New Testament word for hope is based on a promise that hadn't been fulfilled yet, but you know it's coming. I'll, I'll, use, I'll use it this way. Uh, a lot of times we just use the word hope. I hope it doesn't snow or I hope it rains or I hope it doesn't hail on my house or whatever. But the New Testament hope, I'll illustrate it this way. Let's suppose you're a kid and you're wanting a new bicycle for your birthday, and your dad says, I'm going to buy you a new bicycle for your birthday. But your birthday's not for two more months. But you can't wait for your birthday because you know what you're getting. You have hope. That's the hope of the New Testament. 
My hope is built on the promises of God. And what Paul means is that when we hope in the glory of God, it means that we eagerly look forward to seeing the glory of God. Now, the glory of God is radiant. It's going to illuminate the new Jerusalem. You and I couldn't handle seeing God's glory right now. Moses asked for it in Exodus 33. Let me see your glory. God said you can't handle it. It'll kill you. So he put him in the cleft of the rock, and let. And as the God's glory passed by, Moses got a glimpse of the backside of it. And his face lit up for a long time. When he came off the mountain, his face was still glowing. He said that one day, Matthew 5, 8 says, one day we're going to see God. We're going to see him. The glory of God. We're also going to see the glory of Jesus Christ. His high priestly prayer, Jesus asked that his disciples might see his glory, John 17, 24. Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. John saw it again in Revelation 1, 13 to 17. Paul was blinded by the heavenly vision on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9. He saw it again when he caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 6. But in heaven, we're going to see the glory of the risen lamb who was slain, Revelation 7, 9. We're going to see the glory of Jesus. But beyond the glory of the Father, now stay with me, beyond the glory of the Father and Jesus, guess what? We're going to share in that glory. We're not going to be God and we're not going to be Jesus. When did mankind lose the glory that he was created with? In the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned. But when we see Jesus and we're given a new body and we're in heaven, we're going to see Jesus fully, we'll be fully conformed to his image, free of all sin and from every shortcoming, Romans 8, 29 and 1 John 3, 2, and thus we will be glorified with him, Romans 8, 17. It's going to be Awesome. One guy, true story, a very diplomatic young man arrived unannounced at his girlfriend's house. And she came to the door not expecting to see him. And her hair was teased in about six million different directions. It looked like she'd stuck her finger in a light socket. It's kind of an awkward moment when you open the door and wow. So she was making best of the situation. And she said, well, how do you like my hair? He stood there for a moment and said, it looks like it's about to become something wonderful. <laughs> you and I, we get little glimpses of it. We get little glimpses of heaven when we're singing together, when we're looking at his word, when we're seeing people baptized. We get little glimpses of it, but it's about to become something wonderful. Sometimes you can't help but feel like the young the man that was shipwrecked on an island. He was out there on a deserted island for several years and woke up one morning and saw a big ship vessel off of the out in the deeper water and a smaller vessel making its way to shore. He was going to be rescued. He got over there and the guy got out of that smaller vessel and handed him a stack of newspapers. And he said, compliments of the captain. The captain wants you to peruse through these to see if you still want to be rescued. Well, that's kind of how we feel in this world. This world is gloomy. This world is depressing. This world has no hope. 
Ephesians 2.11 says that we used to be those kind of people that had no hope, but we're not anymore. You see, a Christian can live in this gloomy world because we are, we live a stable, mature life. We have peace with God as far as our past is concerned. We have a present standing in God's grace and he can, we can come boldly to God's throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. We have access. We have hope. The world doesn't offer this. How many times have you been let down because somebody made a promise? If you will vote for me. No hope in the government. And you can blame everything you want to blame on climate change, but I'm going to tell you the world is dying. The world is dying. It's not our fault. It's sin. Well, it is our fault because of sin. But what I'm telling you is that we, in the midst of all of this, we have hope. And hope is a word that we use a lot, especially people who have just been to the doctor and they get a, an MRI or an exam or a, an x-ray and, and, and they're waiting on the results and they say, well, I, I hope nothing is wrong. Or I hope it's not serious. Or I hope something can be done. But sometimes they are eventually told by the medical profession, they, you have no hope. Wrong for a believer. I love what Archbishop Layton wrote. He said, the world dares say no more than dumb or doom, spiro, spiro. While I breathe, I hope. But the children of God can add by virtue of this living hope, doom, expiro, sparrow. When I draw my last breath, I've got more hope than I've ever had. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, humans but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. You're just saying, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. The resurrection, because of the resurrection, changes everything. God's righteousness is credited to you. You have been put right with God, justified. You have access to him anytime. And and you have access to him and you stand in his grace. And as far as the future... You ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) But the only way is to come through Jesus Christ. You believe this is true, but then you act on it. You act on it. You have to act on it. The belief that saves you is not just mental ascent. We can go to the airport and I can pull to a plane and say, you believe that plane can fly? Yeah, I believe it'll fly. Well, let's get on it. So you act on it. That's a whole different kind of belief. 
I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe he rose again. And Lord Jesus, I commit my life to you right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. 